this was gigantic. This is the first time a drag queen has ever been put on the uh, cover. A of... drag queen? A drag queen? I am the queen of drag. <laughs> if you recognize this clip, you may have visualized Jimmy Fallon's pale and terror-stricken face as RuPaul punked him on national television with the threat of cancellation. If not, let me provide you with some context. RuPaul had just appeared on the cover of Vogue, becoming the first drag queen to appear on a major magazine's cover. However, this moment of the post-accomplishment interview went viral on the internet due to Fallon's panic. Clearly, he assumed for a moment that drag queen was the wrong term, that somehow he offended RuPaul, the most famous drag queen of her generation and a guest on his show. One would think that someone interviewing a drag queen would have a slightly more informed understanding of drag, no? Well, on this podcast, I hope to do a better job. Hi, I'm Hannah Weiss, a longtime drag fan and a very new drag performer. Welcome to Drag Through New York, a multi-perspective dive into one of the most culturally revolutionary communities in the world. Drag, both local and global, deserves to be destigmatized and demystified because the truth is that it impacts more of your life than you think. From influencing your favorite music to advocating for life-saving medical treatments, drag has always been and continues to be an essential element of social progress in any society. As historian Lindsay Holliday so eloquently said, Drag has been at the heart or on the fringes of every major development in entertainment, and it has had an outsized influence on fashion, language, and culture. You may be thinking, any society, every major development? That means drag must have existed since, like, ancient Egypt. Well, you're correct. Cross-dressing, elaborate physical transformations, and gender-bent performances have existed in ancient Egypt, Greece, Old Italian and Japanese styles of performance, and other nations. One misconception is that Shakespeare invented the word drag by writing the acronym for Dressed Resembling a Girl in the margins of his script. But the truth is, acronyms weren't invented in his time, and women had already been banned from stage long before Shakespeare. Drag performer Shetta Gorgeous tells us, The more likely reason is that it would have reflected the drag of large costume. And that could have been a cape. I don't have one now. It could have been a cape or it could have been a large dress that dragged along the floor. So it was a much more versatile term. It related a lot less to dressing up as a woman and much more to the communicative value of wearing a lovely frock. In fact, when anybody ever tells you that it's only men who are allowed to do drag, they're not telling you some secret drag history. They're just reviving the good old-fashioned patriarchal tradition of excluding women from stage. But I wasn't interested in dressing resembling a girl. When I grew up, it was the monsters, the aliens, the robots, the gods and the goddesses of science fiction and fantasy that beguiled me. And I'd look up at these people and these amazing beings with all of their power to change their worlds. But we're not talking about the world. We're talking about New York City. From vaudeville emerged the first drag queen superstar, Julian Eltinge. He made his first appearance on Broadway in 1904. He ditched slapstick and impressed the audience with his realistic female impersonation. Julian became a fashion icon for women. In the early 20s, he was the highest paid performer in America. 
Drag researcher Talia Reynolds articulates Prohibition's influence on drag beautifully. Gay men and women felt free to be themselves in the underground Prohibition scene. Alcohol brought people together, but Prohibition gathered them in new combinations. Suddenly, when everyone was on the search for newly illegal alcohol, black and white, gay and lesbian life came into contact with one another and dominant society. And for a while, dominant society loved it. Drag flourished in Madison Square Garden, Greenwich Village, and at its most vibrant in Harlem, where the Hamilton Ball Lodge drew crowds of thousands to marvel at drag queens. Hamilton Lodge began holding masquerade balls. Gay men and gender non-conforming people flocked to the secret gatherings, where they could express themselves freely and dance in satin and silk dresses. There were even drag kings, like openly bisexual Gladys Fatso Bentley, who played piano and sang explicit songs while wearing a white tux and hat. Upper-class men were scandalized by the emerging drag scene in New York City, where rouged queens like Princess Toto, Maggie Vickers, and Phoebe Pettifor danced the can-can to a ragtime piano at bars like The Slide. LGBTQ culture thrived in big cities, where police weren't interested in enforcing the unpopular law. During the pansy craze, bootlegged moonshine brought all kinds of people together in illegal speakeasies. Bert Savoy cut a large and brassy figure with her signature red wig and wide-brimmed hat. She and other drag queens were friend and inspiration to upcoming actress Mae West. Mae made it big in Hollywood with her husky voice and risque double entendres. She was an early activist for gay rights and would be an inspiration to drag performers for generations to come. White audiences flocked to Harlem's Jungle Alley to hear the hot new sound, jazz. Jazz brought drag and music together like never before. Langston Hughes described tourists purchasing box seats from which they looked down on the queerly assorted throngs on the dance floor, males in flowing gowns and feather headdresses and females in tuxedos. Harlem drag focused on fashion, beauty, and realness. With the end of Prohibition and the pansy craze, however, came the end of this acceptance. In fact, drag was repressed even more strictly than before. This openness was short-lived, as by the mid-1930s, Prohibition had been repealed and the spaces in which queer life thrived became increasingly policed and stigmatized. The 1933 repeal of Prohibition made it harder for queer people to meet in public. Because bars and clubs needed liquor licenses, the government was now free to create and enforce morality codes. Clubs were frequently raided by police, and people were arrested for wearing three or more items of clothing not associated with the sex on their ID. But drag endured and flourished where it could. In the 30s and 40s, drag often focused on impersonating glamorous Hollywood stars like Elizabeth Taylor and Judy Garland, both of whom were in turn fans of drag and frequented Club 82 in downtown New York. All right, y'all, if you don't mind, I'd like to skip ahead to one of my favorite moments in drag history, the 1960s. Let's hear about Marsha Pay It No Mind Johnson the Stonewall Riots, a.k.a. the origin of Pride, and the thriving activist movement that laid the foundations for the next few decades 
which you will see really needed it. Drag queens and activists Bob the Drag Queen and Peppermint will help fill out the story. But first, let's hear from Marsha herself. Darling, I want my gay rights now. I didn't get into it right away. I was like the Bush makeup queen working in Village. And then I started doing little different drags. And I started wearing little high heel shoes, you know. And I started putting on stockings. And I started becoming a drag queen. I was one of the Stonewall girls. One of the first girls to ever come in drag to Stonewall. 1969, when the Stonewall riot started, that's when I started my little riot. Now, that was the unstoppable force of Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha P. Johnson was a revolution. She was a gender non-conforming performer and an activist during the 1960s, an instigator of the Stonewall riots. This fierce black queen fought tooth and nail for our rights. Marsha P. Johnson was at the forefront of the LGTB plus rights movement, and her resilience and bravery during the Stonewall riots were instrumental. And let's not forget about her iconic fashion sense. Marsha was known for her fabulous ensembles, honey, often rocking vibrant colors and flowers in her hair. She truly understood the power of drag as a form of protest and expression. That she did. Marsha P. Johnson and the Stonewall Rebellion marked a turning point in queer history, inspiring a movement that we would continue to build upon today. And their struggle and resilience paved the way for the rights and freedoms of what we enjoy to this very day. So what was the problem they were rebelling against? Officers frequently harassed and assaulted drag queens, even dunking their heads in mop buckets before hauling them off to jail. In the early morning of June 28, 1969, patrons at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village fought back. Queen Marsha P. Johnson, King Stormy Dulavari, and many others rioted for their right to exist. Thus, the gay liberation movement was born. On the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, the first gay pride marches were organized in New York, Chicago, LA, and San Francisco. Pride events have since spread around the world and are often celebrated in June. Marsha, along with other activists, drag queens, lesbians, and countless others, had had enough of the constant harassment and discrimination. So. When the police came to raid the Stonewall Inn, the bar patrons fought back, refusing to be silenced any longer. Now, it was a true act of resistance and empowerment. The Stonewall riots ignited a fire within the LGBTQ plus community, um, leading the birth of the modern gay rights movement. Marsha and the rest of the activists' bravery and resilience inspired countless others. Absolutely. Marsha P. Johnson was a true activist, and her legacy continues to inspire us all. She co-founded, along with Sylvia Rivera, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, also known as STAR, and fought tirelessly for the rights of transgender and gender non-conforming individuals. It's really important that we also acknowledge places like uh, the Black Cat Tavern and also um, the Compton, uh, Compton's Inn in San Francisco. These were not in New York, but these were other uh, similar protests turned into rebellions that happened in the United States, in San Francisco, and in Los Angeles that, um, that were also just a sign of the times that we were so really oppressed and abused unilaterally in our country, uh, mostly at the hands of law enforcement, that, you know, it didn't take much 
to really the straw to break the camel's back and for all of these sort of rebellions and demonstrations and protests to start popping up all over the country. Similarly to how they did in 2020, when, you know, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, that was not the first uh, unarmed black man to be killed by the police. It certainly wasn't the last, and it wasn't the only one that we were marching for. So we saw, we saw demonstrations popping up in, all over the country, and that was kind of the same tone I, from what I hear from historians uh, that, that, it, that we were feeling in the 60s, in 68 and 69, in the United States when it comes to queer people being um, sort of put upon and wanting to fight for our own rights. So these riots were certainly justified, and the hope to make it through the violence was something that the drag community had to create themselves. This revolutionary spirit was all too necessary for the AIDS crisis of the 70s and 80s. In this period, Vogue ballroom, and houses blossom through an unjust and disease-ridden climate. This, ladies and gentlemen, is voguing, a form of dance that has its roots in Harlem, a takeoff on runway modeling, and I had never seen anything quite like it. And I'm Connie Collins, News 4, Manhattan. Okay, this newscaster isn't really equipped to define voguing, but Willie Ninja, a choreographer who got his start in ballroom, has a lot more insight. Voguing came from shade instead of fighting. You would dance it out on the dance floor, and whoever did the better moves was throwing the best shade, basically. So voguing is like a safe form of throwing shade. Original name, William Roscoe Leake, in 1961 in New York City, as they were born. Uh, Willie would go on to become a trailblazing figure in the voguing and ballroom scene, leaving an incredible mark on the world of drag and honestly, the world of house music. Even as the AIDS crisis took its toll, Willie continued to dance, he continued to perform and inspire others with his fierce fucking dance moves. He refused to let fear or despair overshadow his love for the art of voguing and drag. Documentaries like The Queen and Paris is Burning depicted the environment of house and ballroom, publicizing voices that usually fell on uncaring ears. Let's start with a queen whose appearance in The Queen changed the course of New York drag forever. Queer historian Matt Baum provides some context on the historic moment. New York's drag balls have their origin in annual galas that started in the latter half of the 1800s. Those balls grew, like balls do, into a golden age in the 1920s, a period known as the pansy craze. But although they allowed people of all races to compete, the balls weren't exactly welcoming to people of color. Black drag performers almost never won first place in the contests, and they were expected to lighten their skin to compete. Drag balls then faded from public view in the 1930s, thanks to a moral panic that forced queer culture underground. 30 years passed, and then, with the sexual revolution in the 1960s, drag balls gradually came back out into the open, leading up to the pageant captured in the documentary The Queen. They didn't know it then, but when they shot The Queen, drag was about to change forever. At the very end of the pageant, we see a confrontation involving the reigning Miss Manhattan, Crystal LaBeija. Despite being just as beautiful and talented, she always lost out to white queens. Crystal, where are you going? This is not the time to show temperament. Get back here and stay with the other finalists. I will sue no, I didn't sign any release. And if she releases any bitch on me, I will sue the fool. 
She won't make money off of my name. And that's why all the true beauties didn't come. It's in bad taste and you're showing your colors. And you have I am. I am doing it bad, but I got a, I have a right to show my color, darling. I am beautiful, and I know I'm beautiful. Don't tell her about you showing no color. Taking the wrong way. Shit, she looks bad. And no way of what you say can do about it. Get Harlow's outfit. That was the legendary Crystal Beja. Crystal Beja. <laughs> Not only was she a fierce queen, her work in the ballroom scene during the 60s was groundbreaking. As Miss Manhattan, she had to deal with systemic racism that had been a part of the ballroom scene for a century. And on that night in 1967, her frustration erupted. Crystal and her friend Lottie started organizing their own drag pageants and their own drag house, the House of Labasia. Where the pageant system had titles like Emperor and Empress, drag houses were structured more like families, support networks for queer people who might otherwise have been all alone. Each house had a mother, and Crystal was recognized as the first mother of the House of Labasia. Drag houses kept growing and were a big part of queer life in New York by the 1980s, particularly in communities of color. But most of America had no idea they existed until the documentary Paris is Burning came out in 1990. These balls were all about fierce competition, fierce fashion, and fierce shade. Crystal Labasia was known for her unapologetic honesty, and she could read you down beneath the ground. So, you know, the ballroom scene um, was created for black and brown people when they felt like they couldn't get a leg up in the drag scene, it's particularly in the pageant system. Um, it just felt like no matter how hard you tried, no matter what you did, no matter how beautiful you were, no matter how great your gown was, you just could not get a leg up on these white queens. So instead, Crystal said, well, let's make a space for ourselves. If they're not going to celebrate us, we will celebrate ourselves and celebrate she did. That's right. You know, the House of Labasia set the standard for what a drag house could be. And they were like a family supporting and uplifting one another in a world that often tried to bring them down. And the ballroom scene became a space of celebration, creativity, and of course, legendary Vogue battles. And Vogue, they did. The House of Levasia became a force to be reckoned with in the ballroom community. These queens were serving up on the runway, voguing like there was no tomorrow and snatching trophies left and right. It was like a fierce drag Olympics, and Crystal was the queen of the game. Crystal's leadership and vision paved the way for the entire house system that we know today. She inspired a wave of other houses to rise, creating a support network for LGBTQ plus individuals who face marginalization in society. It was a family that nurtured talent, encouraged growth, and celebrated uniqueness in each member. After Crystal helped start drag houses in the 1970s, the new balls were, by design, far more inclusive than what had come before. This was a world by and for people who had felt excluded, not just from mainstream culture, but from queer subculture. Crystal LaBeige's legacy continues to inspire drag performers and LGBTQ plus communities worldwide. Her determination, strength, and love for her community have become the building blocks of the drag ballroom culture we know and adore. Now, let's not forget that drag is so much more than just fashion and makeup. It's about performance and expression and reclaiming power. And Crystal LaBeige's influence on drag history cannot be overstated. 
You've definitely said a quote or two of hers in your life. She truly left her legacy on the runway. Just keep in mind how commonplace family rejection was and how drag houses provided support that many biological families didn't. The House of Extravaganza has done a lot. It's made me feel like I have a family. But this is a new meaning of family. It's a question of a group of human beings in a mutual bond. Because they're real parents and give them such a hard way to go. They look up to me to fill that void. So that's another reason this world developed, why houses came to exist. In a world that was particularly hostile, ballroom was a place of power, celebration, support, fantasy, and family. So what were the balls like? Well, the format will probably be familiar if you've ever been to a drag show or a pageant or watched Drag Race. It starts with categories. Going to school. Town and country. The category is Butch Queen first time in drags at a ball. The family structure created by Crystal decades earlier turned out to provide more than just escape and support. Crystal and the houses literally saved people's lives. The 70s and 80s were bittersweet. It was an amazing renaissance of drag and ballroom, but it was also filled with grief. Many queer icons and drag performers, including Willie Ninja, passed away from AIDS, when frankly the epidemic could have been prevented or at least minimized. President Reagan refused to acknowledge or work to treat this illness because of its disproportionate impact on gay people. The stigma was as metaphorically suffocating as the slow, painful death was literally but drag performers continued to band together and fight for the rights of their community. Drag queens and queer spaces provided to the queer community what straight society would not. Protection, love, and care. There was one study that showed that 62% of participants in house and ballroom were HIV positive. By 1993, reporters who covered the ballroom scene were starting to use the past tense to describe it. And for a time, it looked like there was a possibility that ballroom could literally die out. So why didn't it? Well, in part because in the 90s the houses recognized what was happening and they banded together to create a unified front to fight AIDS with a new collaborative house, the House of Latex, which threw the annual Latex Ball. That was a giant annual party to raise money and awareness to provide education and distribute safe sex materials and it continues to this day. And there was another initiative called Project Vogue that matched HIV educators to house mothers and fathers, teaching them safe sex practices that then they could pass along to their children. Those projects were watched very closely by HIV educators in the 90s and into the 2000s. Their activism and artistic expression not only saved lives, but helped push drag into the mainstream. Drag culture seemed to slowly fold into mainstream society with such drag and gender-bending performances by actor Tim Curry in 1975's Rocky Horror Picture Show. And the aesthetic stylings of musician David Bowie. In the 1970s, popular sketch comedy troupe Monty Python performed in drag regularly. In 1984, members of the band Queen dressed as characters from the popular British soap opera Coronation Street. For the music video, I Want to Break Free, singer Freddie Mercury was encouraged not to shave his mustache because it made the scene funnier. The video was a hit in the UK, but American audiences considered it offensive and it was banned. If learning about the 70s and 80s of New York drag doesn't inspire you to go tip your local performer, I don't know what will. On that note, Let's move into the 90s and the continued expansion of drag. 
in the 90s, drag finally broke into the mainstream with hit films, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, and The Birdcage, which featured more flattering and sympathetic portrayals of drag queens. But men dressing as women was still frequently used as a punchline in hit movies like Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire and popular TV shows including In Living Color, Martin, Saturday Night Live, Kids in the Hall, and Little Britain. Now that audiences have become more sophisticated about feminism and gender identity, there is a lot of debate about if these tropes are offensive to women and LGBTQ people. Downtown, drag experienced a revival, influenced by punk rock. There, the style was gritty, thrift store, and focused on body comedy and lip-syncing to records. Charles Bush staged plays including Psycho Beach Party and Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. Drag queens including Linda Simpson, Hedda Lettuce, and Mistress Formica rose to fame. Drag kings, including Murray Hill and Mo B. Dick, strutted their stuff at Club Casanova. And, of course, the song Vogue by Madonna came out. It further boosted the visibility and acceptance of ballroom and vogue in the mainstream, especially because she highlighted actual ballroom performers in her hugely popular music video. The aforementioned documentary on ballroom and vogue, Paris is Burning, was released in the same year. Today, as you may have seen in the news, drag is under attack in America. Bills targeting drag performances and transgender youth are on the rise. Media fearmongers have spread false information and incited vigilantes to show up at drag shows with guns and threaten performers and patrons. But at the same time, it is still more celebrated and mainstream than it has ever been. Beyonce's Renaissance tour had a ballroom theme and featured ballroom performers from a variety of houses. Madonna's Celebration Tour featured New York City drag queen, Bob the Drag Queen. Not to mention the drag performers and venues in every major city around the world, new music and theater featuring drag performers, and an increase in queer acceptance globally. And that's about it. I think I just about covered it. Anything else important happen in the world of drag? Oh wait, I forgot! <laughs> That's right, let's address the elephant in the room, RuPaul's Drag Race. To understand how Drag Race came to be, first, we have to look at how RuPaul rose to fame. You better work. His hit 1993 single, Supermodel, You Better Work, catapulted RuPaul. Now people are busting, but now, you know, the swing, the pendulum swung so far to the right, and it's gonna come crashing back to the left, okay? <laughs> who soon after became the first drag queen to ever become a spokesperson for a major cosmetics company with MAC Cosmetics. As the new face of MAC, do you think the average woman is really going to be able to relate to you? I think so. I think RuPaul speaks to the individual in, in everyone. And a morning radio show. As more drag queens came out of the shadows, mainstream media continued to paint more portraits of female impersonation. RuPaul was, and still is, the first drag queen many people learn about. He even had a viral interview on MTV following his Mac campaign. And if someone has a problem with it, the problem they have isn't with me, it's actually with what the, the me they see in themselves. Is Middle America ready for you? What do you think? 
you know what? Mid America is ready for me, and they're going to have to be ready for me if they're not ready or not. I mean, what what I am is I'm a result of a change that's happening. And if I don't, if they don't get me, the change is still going to happen without, with or without me. Learn how to love yourself, no matter what, whether, you know. And once you do love yourself, you don't have to be putting nobody else down because you're not, you're not threatened by them, right? The only people who would ever be threatened by me is someone who doesn't really know themselves or, or doesn't know what's inside of themselves, you know. He then started his now world-famous reality show off the resources of his fame and the knowledge of his own drag career. In 2009, RuPaul's Drag Race premiered. The reality competition series brought the best drag queens of America into living rooms across the world. In addition to highlighting their talents, it also humanized the performers and featured conversations about gender identity, HIV, mental health, and relationships. The show's popularity has had an immeasurable effect on the LGBTQ rights movement and helped many straight and cisgender people relate to the community and become allies. You know, look, y'all, it's no secret. Like, our appearance on Drag Race has helped us tremendously. It has helped us improve our lives and get a much larger platform and audience, really allowing us to reach a global audience and bring more diversity and representation to the forefront. And it's really important that we continue pushing boundaries and ensuring that all voices are heard. And that's exactly what we're trying to do. Drag Race has been critiqued for giving queens of color less praise than their white contestants. And these queens are also often targeted by internet trolls due to their ethnicity. The show has also been critiqued for pushing a narrow representation of what drag is. For example, celebrating queens that are hyper-feminine and not casting any drag kings. I want to see more diversity on the show, and I think by having more stories on the show, it's going to connect even more people. That was Jada Essence Hall, a drag queen who won season 12 of the series. To me, her open criticism of the program is oddly inspiring. Although the content of her point is a real and valid problem to be addressed, the fact that drag performers can disagree over nuanced issues while continuing to uplift each other's art gives me hope for the future of drag. In 2018, shows like Pose and Dragula started to emerge, representing drag before Drag Race, and also different styles of drag. Drag Race contestants including Trixie Mattel, Bianca Del Rio, Shangela, Bob the Drag Queen, Jinx Monsoon, and so many others have shot to international fame with record deals, comedy specials, and live performances. Drag shows have become popular for people in all walks of life, and drag is now a bigger part of entertainment than it has ever been. More LGBTQ performers, writers, and producers are out than ever before, and as a result, positive queer representation in entertainment has skyrocketed. Drag has even revisited its roots, with all-female and non-binary troops performing Shakespeare. Drag Race Season 8 winner Bob the Drag Queen discussed that while many Drag Race fans are used to seeing drag only in the context of the reality show, RuPaul wants the world to remember the power of her drag career pre-TV. And as we're like getting our critiques, RuPaul just comes from behind the judges booth and goes, I want to let you bitches know I still got it. And she's still in full drag, heels and everything. And she just starts runway walking across the front of the stage, like back and forth. She just keeps being like, like singing her own songs and like strutting uh -uh -uh back and forth. It was really a, a nice uh, relief from the scrutiny that is being judged on RuPaul's Drag Race. 
Before we wrap up this discussion of New York drag history, I want to dive a bit more deeply into the queen you just heard and who has already spoken throughout this podcast. Bob the Drag Queen is one of my personal favorite drag performers. I chose to dive further into his story because of his combination of engagement with the modern industry and honoring the values of drag history through his art and activism. As a fellow iconic New York drag queen, Peppermint said best, Bob the Drag Queen quickly rose to fame after winning the eighth season of RuPaul's Drag Race. But let's rewind a little bit and uncover the magic behind the legend. Bob's journey into the world of drag started in New York City, where he honed his craft, making waves in the vibrant nightlife scene. I was there, I know. As a performer and as a stand-up, Bob's razor-sharp wit, comedic timing, unapologetic activism set him apart from all of the rest. And, you know, I think Bob continues to be a leader in that way and inspire people. In addition to his drag career, Bob has ventured into acting, music, comedy, and podcasting. He has used his platform to shed light on important issues, including LGBTQ plus rights, racial justice, HIV AIDS awareness. Uh, I, I think, you know, Bob's activism really started for me when watching, uh, witnessing Bob get arrested every single week when they were doing drag queen weddings in uh, Times Square as a way to protest in favor of marriage equality, which had not yet been passed at that time. Bob is also one of my favorite activists. He manages to fight for justice in a variety of frustrating issues while maintaining joy and hope both within himself and for his community. His conversation with Ari Shapiro on NPR depicts this marvelously. I don't know how long I'd be in, in jail for. So what you can't see is that I have, my breasts are made of cashews. <laughs> you brought the snacks. I have a bagel under my wig. Oh my God. And I have a cliff bar underneath each hip pad. You are prepared. Yes. As more states pass laws that ban gender nonconformity, Bob has seen that backlash firsthand filming the show We're Here. Hi, I'm Bob. Nice to meet Mary Jasine. Yes. Nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Yes, and it, Bob, I know you know. Well, that's an assumption. On the show, Bob and two other drag queens go to small towns and put on a show with locals who get fabulous drag makeovers. Do you think drag is an inherently political act? To a degree, yeah. I think it's forced to be political, whether the person themselves feels political or not. Doing drag is now a political issue because I guess people think there's some agenda with drag queens. There's no, I mean, the only thing on the drag agenda is brunch on Sundays. Like, there's no plan or plot to reach people's children or anything. Most drag queens don't even want to be around, be around kids. <laughs> like, I do a drag show at Barracuda, not at Jimboree. You know what I mean? To bring back the lovely Cheddar Gorgeous's philosophical insight... The funny thing is that when you do that, when you change the shape of your body, when you change the way that you look, you start to understand how so much of that stuff that we worry about when it comes to beauty is fake. It's all about how long you spend in front of the mirror. It's a constructed fantasy. More than that, though, I think it, it means that you have to spend a lot more time looking at what's inside. 
because you have to figure out what's the story you're going to tell people. Who is the person you want to show when you get rid of all those conventions that are attached to your body? Maybe it's the inner beauty. Maybe it's the inner bitch. It's the people that we feel we're not allowed to be in our everyday lives that we think may not be practical and may not be tolerable. The people who we may not be able to be because of the expectations people have of our gender or just social convention in general. We may not be able to solve the world's problems with an eyelash and a bold lip liner, but we can draw attention to them. The artifice of beauty can be manipulated into something, well, beautiful. As we consume and interact with drag today, we must acknowledge its past to understand the priorities of the present. Drag is not only fabulous and fierce and aesthetic, but essential to cultural justice and a compassionate, inclusive society. By the way, I barely scratched the surface. I mentioned a few drag performers, but there are probably thousands of drag performers in New York alone who have paved the way for drag to thrive now all over the world. From Sylvia Rivera to Blackie O to Lady Bunny's wig stock, there is a lot more to learn. So please, appreciate the elders on whose shoulders we stand now, in drag and beyond. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drag Through New York. Now that you've gotten an overview of the history, you'll soon get to hear from seven incredible New York City drag performers from a variety of perspectives. Keep listening to hear directly from the source.